Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with Professor Jennifer L. Shaw. Shaw is a professor emeritus of art history at Sonoma State University. She's also the author of Exist Otherwise, The Life and Work of Claude Cahun, Reading Claude Cahun's Disavows, and Dream States, Pouvi de Chavanneux, Modernism and the Fantasy of France. Let's hear what she has to say about the lives and death of Claude Cahun and Marcel Moore. Professor Shaw, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I, I would love to start off by getting uh, some backstory on Claude Cahun's uh, early years. What was Claude's childhood like? Where did she grow up? Okay, so she was born Lucy Schwab. Um, and she grew up in the city of Nantes in France. Her mother was Catholic. Her father was Jewish. 
And her father was also the editor of a major Republican newspaper, which Republican uh, being on the left at that time in France, nothing like the Republicans in America. Her uncle was a really well-respected symbolist poet who was also gay and friends with Oscar Wilde. So she grew up, her mother was uh, not very well mentally and was psychologically abusive to her and was always telling her that her, you know, like her nose was too big and her ears stuck out. And so she grew up, you know, under some difficult circumstances. Her mother then uh, was institutionalized. She was raised by her paternal grandmother who was blind and who was very well educated and had her granddaughter read to her from classic literature, which was normally not the purview of young girls. And so she had a very unusual education for a girl. She also had access to the library in her, um, in the uh, rooms of the newspaper, which was very extensive and had a big collection of symbolist poetry and things like that. So when she was young and realizing that she was not uh, a kind of a conventional girl and didn't want to be. And her father actually told her that he didn't, he didn't want her to marry because he was worried that her children would uh, have the mental issues that her mother had. Um, so there wasn't really a lot of pressure on her to be conventional either, which is quite unusual for the time. So she met her uh, life partner, Suzanne Miller, um, in her teens. And the two families were friends. And then Perrin's mother died, and Suzanne Mellerb's father died, and their parents married each other, and they became stepsisters. And then they started producing their work together. They did a lot of photographs. Cahan wrote a sort of symbolist-inspired poetry, and Meller illustrated it. And, and then they moved to Paris. I see. So I, I would love to learn more about their work. What was it like? Uh, what was Cahan's writing about? Okay. So, well, the early writing was was very reminiscent of of French symbolist writing, which is very evocative and very hard to describe. Actually, one <laughs> of the things about Cahan's writings that's always said is it's way less accessible than her photography um, and photo montage that she did along with, with her stepsister and lover. Once they got to Paris, uh, things shifted a little bit, and uh, they started to follow the Dadaists and Surrealists. And so the 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 big project that happened in the it was produced in the twenties and published in nineteen thirty is called Avenue en Avenue, which um, is currently translated by MIT. It's published by MIT Press in translation. Um, is called disavowals. Um, people also refer to it as avowals null and void or disavowed confessions. So that title gives you an idea about what the writing is like. It's very elliptical. It takes all kinds of forms, letters, diaries, poems, dialogues between people, dreams. It's something that's uh, for many people is best read in small snatches. And then it's kind of very 
interesting and witty and entertaining and subversive. But most people I know who try to read it all at once wind up throwing the book against the wall. At least I've, <laughs> I've heard people say that. I've literally, I, I tried to read this and I just threw it against the wall. Um, and it's illustrated with uh, photo montages. There's one that opens each chapter. So the writing, it, I believe, is really all written by Claude Quehin. The photo montages are a collaboration between Claude Quehin and her stepsister, who took the pseudonym Marcel Moore. And um, basically, what they did was they took many photographs of Claude Quehin in various different guises. And some of them were, they were also involved in theater. So some of the costumes are actually from theater productions that they were involved in. Um, and then they sort of cut and pasted and photographed and montaged them together um, into these very interesting montages that have many, many, every single one of them has um, Claude Quehin's face in it um, more than once. There are also many body parts and other elements, and sometimes there are drawn elements that are mixed in, and they're just really cool. They're really cool. And then a lot of the photographs that they're made from are also really interesting. One that I I think is particularly striking and funny is one where um, Claude Kenha is dressed up like a bodybuilder, and they use some pretty extreme lighting so that her face appears mask-like, and she's wearing a shirt, but the nipples are drawn on and um, written on her chest. It says, I am in training. Don't kiss me. But she has these big like hearts on her cheeks and her lips are very, very dark and sort of doll like. So she, her face looks like it's asking to be kissed, but her body says, don't kiss me. And she's holding this big sort of comical barbell. It's, it's hard to explain, but yeah, I I think I've seen the the photo online. I'm sure if you do a quick Google alarm me, you will find this uh this photo. It's really pretty cool, actually. Yeah, and and hopefully you would find the photo montages also. Yeah. Now, now Kahun wrote wrote and and kind of experimented uh, with a lot of gender ambiguity. And it feels like that might have been a, a, a pretty progressive topic at the time. Am, am I right in thinking that? You are absolutely right. You know, it's it's not as if it didn't exist, um, especially once you get into the 1930s. There were sort of underground clubs where there are a lot of a lot of queer people, a lot of, you know, women wearing men's clothes and et cetera, et cetera, you know, sort of so that people would appear Trans. And some of the writings in Disavowals uh, are explicitly about playing with gender. In, pl- in fact, most of them are, um, or many of them are, playing with playing with gender, playing with gender pronouns, um, you know, refusing really to be pinned down in terms of either sexuality or gender. And it's very, it's very unusual to to publish something like that. So yeah. We we briefly during our main episode discussed misogyny inside the surrealist movement and how how prevalent it it could have been. Mm-hmm. What do do you think Kahun's uh was su- subjected to it and and what kind of scene did she run with 
in Paris? Well, she had a lot of family connections to people involved in the world of theater and the literary world. So initially, those were the people that she was connected to. And then right around the time that her book was published, uh, she was introduced by a family friend, Jacques Villot, to uh, André Breton, who was the head of the Surrealist movement. And she wound up being really close friends with a few different Surrealists. Robert Desnos uh, was a very close friend. He was a writer. And then René Crevel, who was a writer who was also queer, was a very close friend. It is very true that the Surrealists, on one hand, there are a lot of depictions of women that appear quite misogynist. And the Surrealists also, they had this Bureau of Surrealist Research where they would all gather and discuss things. And they did some um, sort of interviews about sexuality um, that you can now find. They're now published and translated. And some of the stuff in there is incredibly misogynist and some of it's incredibly homophobic. That said, Um, There is a side to surrealism that was actually quite enabling for um, Cahin and other women surrealists. There are a lot of really great women surrealists who are now, you know, coming to light, you know, like Dorothea Tanning. There's a new book coming out about her um, by Amy Lyford. They're, you know, they're just really, really a lot of great work was done. And I think that's because surrealism, they were interested in Freud, and there's also a very misogynist side to Freud. But the fact that Freud was um, was interested in this idea of the unconscious, that he sort of made brought that to light, leaving aside like all his stuff about gender and how we should be socialized into the proper gender and how if you're not, that means that you're ill. Leaving all of that aside, there is this idea that in surrealism that one wants to lay waste to conventional institutions like the family and religion and unleash the unconscious and actually use the unleashing of the unconscious to get us to question those conventions. Um, And I think that that was actually quite enabling for, for women. And then for Kaha in particular, her work, both her writing and her her uh, photo montage work together with Moore and, you know, the photography and the objects that she made later in the 30s, all of them sort of refuse to be pinned down. They're meant to evoke things rather than tell you what to think or make it easy for you to tell what you're seeing with the idea that you will then bring your own personal element to it. and. When, when we get into the political context, um, moving, you know, into the 30s with the rise of fascism, there was a big debate about how one ought to try to convince people to fight against fascism. And some people um, in the Surrealist group who actually wound up getting excommunicated from it by Andre Breton, like Louis Aragon, believed that we should give up the surrealist way of writing, which is, you know, seems very weird. You know, there's just all these this imagery of things that could never exist in the real world. 
Um, and we should just start writing in a straightforward way so that everybody will understand it and we will tell them what's good and what's bad. The other possibility that people were really interested in was this idea that what we ought to be doing is bringing together objects that are not normally seen together in order to evoke new meanings and to get people's minds going and to get them to think about new things or think differently and bring their own experiences and their own unconscious desires and needs to whatever they're seeing. And in that way, if we can, if we can do that, but also sort of point, point the object or the writing towards something politically more productive, more revolutionary, away from fascism, away from like, here's what I'm telling you what to think, that people will actually, it, when people come up with their own ideas, they are often hard, it's often hard to change their mind. You know, when they feel like I came to this conclusion by myself, mm -hmm. this is what I think. And that's really what you do when you're when you're looking at a surrealist object or you're reading surrealist writings. They're so weird that you you're you're sort of interpreting them and you feel like you kind of get what what's going on, but you can't really pin it down. And the meanings sort of shift depending on the context. And that's a really that's a really interesting thing. Um about surrealism for someone like Kehan, because she was very committed to the notion that, you know, we one should not be dogmatic. One should look at the individual context and, and one's own personal position in relation to a, a politics or a social situation. And in that moment, you know, come up with whatever one believes about it rather than just listening to someone that says war is always bad or war is always good or, you know, doctrinaire positions were not something that she was interested in. That's fascinating. It's it's like she was trying to, it's like the movement and the art form is really trying to shake you out of uh, the norm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And shake you out of your complacency. Yes. Now, at, 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 one, at what point, do uh, Cloud and, and, and Marcel leave Paris and go over to the Channel Islands? And how does their life change during this time period? So um, Claude Quirin and Marcel Moore um, leave in 1937. And, you know, at this point, they had been involved in anti-fascist activities in Paris, but it was becoming really clear that uh, this this was be it was becoming a dangerous place for them to stay, uh, especially because of Kaz's Jewish heritage. And also, I think there was a sense that the kind of political activity that they were participating in was really not effective anymore. So they left. This was actually they went to Jersey because that was a place that they had gone in the summers all through their lives. So they actually had contacts there. They had friends there um, and they were familiar with it. And the other reason they were able to do this is because at this point, um, the last of the parents had died and all of the estate had gone to them. So they had some money to support themselves even, you know, more than before. Um, 
and they they wound up buying a house, a beautiful sort of stone farmhouse right on the water. And initially it was quite an idyllic life. They had beautiful gardens. They were right next to the the church and there was a, you know, it was a church with a nice little graveyard and that there was a wall around their garden and then the beach and they, you know, they just were enjoying themselves. But they were also a little bit anxious because they could see the coming of the war. The the, the Nazis eventually invade and yes. they they started to, I guess, create this Nazi resistance art. Mm-hmm. And what what kind of stuff were they doing and how did they go about doing it undetected? So in Paris, actually, Susan Meller, she signed her artwork more, but she signed all of her, they did, you know, they signed tracts against fascism and everything. She used Susan Meller as um, in, in her signature, whereas uh, Claude Cahat um, signed everything Claude Cahat. But when they went back to um, to Jersey, they both took their given names and they just sort of tried to blend in. They were seen as being a little bit eccentric. And especially after the war, they were seen as being very eccentric. But prior to and during the war, especially, you know, during the occupation, they dressed like in jodhpurs and Wellington boots and scarves so that they were they didn't call attention to themselves. So um, initially they started by just writing uh, a couple of words um, in German, uh, ohne Ende, which means without end. And it started with Keha thinking of a sort of slogan, victory, no, war without end, and then deciding, no, I'm, go- I'm just going to say without end. So that went along with the, the idea that you want, um, you want your readers to to be able to interpret this for themselves so that they're in a context where they see without end. And then you assume that they're probably going to think, you know, God, this is just going on and on. And, you know, people back home are are being killed and all this is happening. When is this going to end? So they started by taking cigarette packets and writing on them and then um, depositing them around. And then things just accelerated from there. Um, so they went to the little pleasure fair in the in the town and they took the coins that you would use to, um, you know, the tokens that you would use to do the rides or play the games. And they took them home and they wrote on them with nail polish down with war in German. Suzanne Muller i.e. Moore, was fluent in German, but although she was supposed to declare this to the government, she didn't. And so nobody knew. And even their housekeeper didn't know that she could speak and read and write German. So then they went back to the pleasure fair and, you know, they just sort of threw these around so that people would find them. They went to the newsstands and they bought copies of magazines, like illustrated magazines in German, um, the German illustrated magazines. They then brought them home, sort of cut and pasted and reorganized them so that they had kind of a vaguely anti 
war sentiments, some of them vague, some of them not so vague. And then they went back to the newsstands and tucked them in among the other magazines. Sometimes they would just take a page and they would make one page and then they would tuck it into the magazines. They built crosses because they were near the graveyard and um, it was an old graveyard. But when German soldiers died on the Isle of Jersey, um, they were buried there in a special little section of the graveyard. And so they would make wooden crosses and write on them, um, for example, for for him, the war has ended. And so they're, they described some of them like splashing them with red paint to emulate blood. There was one example where they they got a big piece of fabric and they made a banner and it said something like, Jesus is great, but Hitler is greater. Jesus died for man, but men die for Hitler. And they painted this banner in the colors of the German flag with those words. And then they snuck into the church. And I'm not sure how they did it, but they wound up sort of pulling it up into the rafters so that it was hanging in the church, in the front of the church. Wow. So so they're finally or eventually caught. And yeah. are they're sentenced. Uh, what was their sentence and, and, and what did they endure in jail? Okay. So um so they were they were caught. Um probably they were reported by the person who was selling them cigarette packets. Mm. Uh, although who knows? I mean, we don't know for sure. And when they were on their way, they were being taken to jail. Um, they made up an excuse to go get some pills that were supposed to be for Claude Quinn's heart condition, which she didn't have, but that was the, that was the excuse. Um, Suzanne Miller went back in, Moore went back in, got these pills, and while they were riding in the car to the jail, they each took a whole bunch of pills. So they were trying to kill themselves, which had been, this had been, they had had a suicide pact from the time they started doing these subversive acts. You know, they would go out with their little shopping bags and they would have little notes and uh, missives written poems, things like that with little drawings. And they would actually stick them in soldiers' pockets. If there was a jacket, you know, that had been thrown out when there were funerals, they would open the doors to the cars that were while people were in the graveyard for the funeral and stick things inside the cars, stick things under the windshields. And they always had these tablets, which were called Gardenelle, with them. And they were had been told by a medical student that if they each took 20, it would kill them. But in fact, that was not nearly enough to kill them. Um, so they got to the jail. By the time they got to the jail, they were both unconscious. And they were put in separate cells. They each woke up. More thought, you know, that Kaha was dead um, and actually made a second suicide attempt with a piece of glass trying to, you know, slit her. Yeah. Um, and I think Keha may have also made a second suicide attempt with some pills that she was prescribed by a doctor for something else a little bit later. So they, both of them just really 
they felt strongly about this. They were arrested in the spring of 1944, and they were kept isolated from each other until very late in their imprisonment. And the trial, they were waiting for them to both be kind of of sound enough mind and body to be questioned. And the trial happened in November. I believe it was November 16th, 1944. So they hadn't seen each other from spring until November. And the first time they saw each other was when they were both brought to the trial, which was a kind of ad hoc trial in a sort of you know, cushy room. It wasn't in a real court. And they were sentenced to several months imprisonment for possessing things like typewriters and radios. And and they had, I think they had some pistols. And then they were sentenced to death for their subversive act. And they were they were basically told that they were using spiritual arms instead of firearms and that spiritual arms were actually much more dangerous because with firearms, you could tell how much the damage was. But with spiritual arms, you know, with propaganda circulated over a period of four years, um, they really didn't know how much damage had been caused because what what. And more were trying to do was to get the soldiers themselves to resist, to get them to start to turn against the war effort. And the Germans did not think that these two little old ladies had done this. They thought there was a big conspiracy. Um, Cahan and Moore signed a lot of their tracts, first the soldier without a name, and then the soldier without a name and his comrades. And so, um, you know, they, the Germans really thought that there was a, a big conspiracy and this is why they were able to keep going with it for so long because they were just under the radar because they were women of a certain age. Wow. They were in their fifties at the time <laughs> of doing this, not really that old, but old enough to be sort of, you know, People in their women in their fifties know that very often they are not yes. paid attention to anything. They turned it into their superpower. <laughs> they did. They turned it into their superpower. Exactly. Exactly. It, like, can I just add one thing? Like, yes, even yes. During the trial, they they felt that the that the Nazis who were trying them did. They still didn't really believe that they could have done it. I mean. So they were basically arguing with them, trying, you know, convincing them, yes, this is ours. Yes, this is ours. Yes, we really did this. And Kehan writes that um, they were condemned. uh, They condemned them without believing in their existence. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Crazy. (laughs) Now, after they're released, uh, after the end of the war, how do they continue to create art during this time period. And uh, after their death, what happens to their artwork? They went back to their house to find that it had been looted. You know, much of their work had been taken by Germans, actually, as soon as they were taken off to prison, just like German soldiers going into the house and taking what they wanted. I think really all of the artwork that was in the house had been confiscated when they were arrested. 
And then it was all destroyed. Everything that was in the house that had been confiscated and all the all the objects and tracks that they had, almost all of them that they had created. Apparently, at the trial, they had over 300 objects that had been turned in or that they had found around the island. And that was only a small portion of what was actually made. And much of it was destroyed. Some, there are very few tracts or sort of not the tracts themselves, but the the sort of studies for them, you know, were still in the possession of Hannah and Morn. I'm not really sure how they how they kept possession of them. Maybe they were hidden somewhere in the house that that the Germans didn't find them. But um Bodkeha died before Moore did. And then Moore had all of the all of the stuff that was left. And then when Moore died, she was very ill and took her own life. And then the estate was auctioned off. And what was left of their work, um, other than things that had already been published or given to people or sold to people while they were in Paris and in other places... The rest of their work, all the work they had in their own possession, was bought by a man called John Wakeham. And I, the report is that he bought it for 21 pounds, hmm. like the whole lot. Wow. And then he eventually gave it to the Jersey Heritage Trust. And so there's a decent sized archive in the Jersey Heritage Trust. It's mainly negatives, the glass plates that were you the plates that were used for the lithographs in the book um of Anon Avenue, a lot of notes that were written. And then um after the war they they took photographs. Claude Cahin wrote a lot of letters and also was sort of trying to put together a memoir, not a straightforward memoir, of course, um, but a sort of elliptical memoir that told the story of the war. So all of that was in the Wakeham collection. The letters were, you know, they were sent. So they actually, there were drafts of the letters in the Jersey Heritage Archive, but the original or the ones that were sent are in various collections. Um, So that's, so that's, you know, there's not that much out there. Yeah. And much, many of the photographs, if you see the photographs in, you know, in many places, they're prints that are made from the negatives, not at the moment when the photographs were taken and originally used, but much later, which in a, in a way doesn't matter, be, in my opinion, because um, Plotkin and Marcel Moore, like they weren't artists who spent a lot of time in the dark room, you know, right. <laughs> messing about with their negatives. They took them and printed them and then they cut them up and, you know, montaged them. So, <laughs> yeah. So we always like to ask our guest experts this question. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for, in this case, I'm going to ca- call it, the artistic hindrance of of Cajun and and Marcel uh, Moore's work, who or what would that be? The most sort of material 
was destroyed by the Nazis. So I would say it's the Nazis or, you know, Hitler or however you want to categorize that. Sure. Yeah. There are many women artists whose work was undiscovered. And that is because there is a gender bias or has been a gender bias in the history of art and the history of literature. And people haven't paid attention to women artists and especially not queer women who were really fighting against conventional gender ideas of gender. So I think that's also part of the problem, but it would have been much easier to figure out and rediscover them if there were more material traces of the work that they did. And we're just really lucky that there were books that Evan on Avenue, and then there was another book, uh, Claude Cahan illustrated, which was like a um, children's, a children's poetry book by a woman called Lise de Harm that was done in the late mid thirties in Paris. Those two things are, you know, there are many cop, many copies of those. So they're, they're accessible. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for helping us understand these incredible historic figures. I'm, I'm so glad we're not to- completely buried and forgotten. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I said this before, but I want to see some statues. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they're, they're, they're actually, um, there are st- there's a street named after them now in Paris. Ooh. Yeah. So they're starting to get their memorials. That's great. We're we're going to have to go visit. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. So fun talking to Jennifer and learning Mm -hmm. about, you know, these incredible underground artists 
the surrealist movement and 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 really i i feel like we got a really good picture of what uh Cahun's art was like which mm-hmm. I, which is it's got to be hard it's kind of hard to explain mm-hmm. so i feel like jennifer really um was good at 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 giving us a little taste of 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 what it was feels like a mood yeah (laughs) well it feels like an act almost like um while she was explaining to me i just kept thinking of the word word rebellion and it really Mm -hmm. felt like that's what she was doing through her art which is so cool totally it was interesting to hear the when she was talking about the debate that kind of came up at the time when the artists about how they were supposed to fight or talk about fascism right. and this kind of the fight between like being just super literal and direct and telling people this is what's good and bad versus like let them like let's just put these things that aren't normal and aren't seen together together and let people kind of come up with it on their own and not be so dogmatic and which to me seems like really kind of a, a cool way to let someone kind of learn things on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, but also seems kind of risky. Like what if yeah. they don't get it? Yeah. You know? I, I keep thinking of like Montessori school, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> it isn't very direct. And right. I think it's that's why it's good. Right. It's, it, it's good, but it's also like, hope you hope, you get the message too it was fascinating too watching them take those ideals of their art form and basically put you know when they were protesting the war put that into action like they didn't sacrifice their ideals in order to protest the war they protested the war in the voice of these art pieces Mm -hmm. which were you know like um jennifer was saying they weren't these direct messages to these soldiers. They were meant at to be pieces for the soldiers to interpret on, under their own kind of cognition, which was really, uh, I don't know, maybe. It's genius. I think it's pretty it's, evocative, it's, provocative. Yeah. It's like very, like she was saying they were, when they were charged with spiritual arms and that being more dangerous than like actual arms, because you can't really measure the amount of psychological, psychological damage that it's doing to their agenda it's like yeah it's great yeah <laughs> it's like a virus it's like getting in their mind with like a little mental virus and letting it hopefully it falls apart yeah <laughs> that's a good way of thinking uh-huh. about it. yeah and they, they i just think it's so fascinating that they protested in their own voice yeah. right so mm. sometimes we when when we feel so helpless when huge things are happening around the yeah. world and you're just like, well, what am I going to do? Like there's a pandemic. I have no idea what science is, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to come up with the vaccine. So like, how can you help? Right. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. can you, how can you contribute? And they just like really found their, their way of fighting back. Yeah. That was well, this is why we need artists. This is why artists yeah. are really important because they have a way of, you know, saying things or making things heard or felt that is sometimes are often more impactful than mm-hmm. politics. Totally. And I'm so glad that they are now being unearthed and talked about. And because it, because like Jennifer was saying, you know, women for so long were overlooked as artists. Mm. Um, yeah. Not just, I mean, I, I think 
and and it's something we didn't really put up on the board. I don't think we we I, did we put up misogyny. I think we did. we did. We said misogyny we did, but, in the art scene. Thankfully, that's on the board. Yeah, but but the way that Jennifer explained it is just like just like the gender inequality. Um, yeah, the the history of uh, of gender bias. She said yes, in the uh-huh. in the history or in the in the history of art, which is which is true. And I also kind of love how she was illustrating that with sharing that fact about how they're at their trial the nazis were literally like wait so you guys did this and they're like yeah <laughs> we did it <laughs> didn't they're even like, believe no. that these women could do it they're it's just like, like too good for- <laughs> convincing them that they are guilty <laughs> yeah. imagine you're like you don't want to admit to it but you're like no but like i it like, is my art it's yeah. good I'm, I'm proud of my art that i shouldn't have done in your eyes and, and also like you, you asshole like you don't believe yeah. <laughs> that i could do this Um, it tells you a lot about the what the nazis felt about propaganda because they were more scared and the spiritual arms argument Mm. i guess were as Mm. being more dangerous than firearms which was fascinating Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. they obviously clearly cared about messaging about ideas and that these two women were sort of rebelling against their ideas and ideals was more threatening to them than um, actual arms or firearms or whatever was mm-hmm. very telling and fascinating element of the story. Yeah. So Jennifer said that she would blame uh, the Nazis and also the gender inequality, right? Mm-hmm. Nazis, Hitler, gender inequality. And while she was saying that, because I, I know we did and en- eventually end up sending, um, I believe it was the Nazis, or giving the slap to the Nazis and Hitler to jail. Yeah. Right? Which was great. Feel really good about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I wonder if there's room to send, I I mean, I I feel like Hitler slash Nazis should be in jail, both of them. Right, right, right. right. And then give the big slap to gender inequality in the art world. Okay. Sure. In the world sure. Of art. Yeah. Um, so we just rolled Nazis into Hitler, and that's one big jail. Yes, and I was. It just like kind of hit me. I was like, why didn't we, we could have sent both? <laughs> right. You can. It's true. We could do whatever we I want. I feel like it's very well deserved that we send both. <laughs> mm-hmm. They kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um. So. I think I'll call it. Okay. Okay. Gender inequality in the world of art. You're getting the big slap. Nazis and Hitler, you're in the alarmist jail. Did it. We did it. You know. And we'll do it again. Yeah. We'll never stop doing it. No. That's that's how we roll. <laughs> we got him, guys. We got Hitler. <laughs> And I'm Job glad well I'm glad it was uh it's some there uh something really cool is that we got him for these two queer gender bending artists. Mm-hmm. Butch right now seems like we should be propping up and championing these people yes, more than ever. Exactly. As is always the case. Mm-hmm. Well, under attack. <sighs> It just it's it just keeps happening, huh? How, mm-hmm. how we need to stop it, and we I need wish- to stop othering. That's what we need to yes. stop too. Exactly. Well, 
I guess what we can do, if we're going to do it, the Kahan uh, and if we're going to take their advice and do it our way, yeah. I think we're just going to keep podcasting about yeah. it. This is our voice. <laughs> we're trying to get to a million. <laughs> we will cover every single tragedy and we will try to not let history repeat itself with all of our might. Now stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing and covering the Dave Matthews Band Chicago River Incident. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.